Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning, Hillside. It's good to be with you guys this morning. I get to do this a couple times a year. It's always uh, good to be up here with parents and grandparents and say hello to you guys and kind of inform you of what's been going on in the student ministry. But before I even get to that, does anybody ever notice, like our creative arts uh, department is so good at putting together these little videos, but every time I come on stage, I feel so insecure because the music they give my videos is for students and it's cool. And it's trendy and it's got a great beat. It's got that beat when you're in the store and you're like trying jeans on and you're like, yeah, these look good, you know? And so it just, they always are hyping me up and then I come on stage and I'm such a boring, basic white guy, a beard like every other 33-year-old guy out there. And it's, it feels as if, like from my perspective, before I've even opened my mouth, the entire audience is just like, oh gosh, the music, mic. And so I already put in a note during first service, Creative Arts Department is gonna be real, making these videos much more boring so that when I come on the stage, it's like, Mike is here <laughs> to save us from that horrible video. All right, let's get started. Um, when Pete asked me if, if uh, I could speak for him this Sunday since he had some other things going on, I, uh, I said, hey, if you don't mind, I would love to just kind of let the parents know where we were back in the fall, November and December, and that actually was in the book of Mark, okay? Now, I know that some of you in the audience this morning have tattoos on your arms, your legs, tramp stamps that say survivors of the book of Mark, And I respect you so much more because of that, all right? But I told Pete, I said, I think I wanna do something a little bit different with Mark than what you did in two years because in the student ministry, we did the whole book of Mark in five weeks. And today, I'm gonna do the whole bird's eye view of Mark in 35 minutes. So for you survivors out there, you can't get those two years back. They're gone. And it could have only taken 35 minutes. That's all it needed. And let me, let me just kind of do some review. If you were in, here during the Mark series, or maybe you joined Hillside or started coming to Hillside in the last few years and you weren't here for it, uh, Pete gave some great kind of like points as to how Mark is writing, what he's writing for. This is the first gospel written. Uh, Mark is not an apostle. He actually is sitting under Peter, and he's hearing all of Peter's sermons and firsthand accounts himself and stories and just soaking all of this in, getting all of the fact-checking correct and putting it into a gospel so that we have this account of Jesus's ministry. It's written in Rome and it's for Rome. And so it's very much a Gentile book, a non-Jewish book. Uh, and I think the, the things that I appreciate the most about Mark and the reason why I would probably say it's my, if I'm allowed to say this, I don't know. It's my favorite gospel is because it's so raw. It's so honest. Uh, it, it is so fast paced and full of action. And the other couple reasons why I decided to do that five week series back in November and December on Mark is because as Pete said, 25 different times, 
the seven Greek words that can be used for the words amazement are used in the book of Mark. Because my second reason I want to do this series is because when you look at Mark from a bird's eye view, okay, Jesus just kept showing his authority over all things. And the amazement that follows in the presence of that authority is where we get the king's side of this series. He's the king. I think doing this bird's eye is great because it's gonna give us a chance and it did in a student ministry to kind of drop in on some stories and yet see what Mark is doing through the entire book this morning. So I'm telling you right up front that if you've been following Christ for a while, I know you've heard these stories. You're familiar with them, but I wanna show you, show you in the grand scheme of what Mark was doing, why it's there, why the authority of Christ is being presented and how then with that authority, he is also uncommon. So here's where we started in the student ministry and here's where we'll start this morning is in Mark 2. By the time you get to Mark 2, this is how fast-paced Mark is. Jesus has called his disciples. He's already been teaching so that the people see that he has real authority when he teaches, unlike the religious leaders. He's been healing people of their physical you know, ailments or disabilities that they have. He's been casting demons out of people, and we're literally only in chapter 1 of Mark. And by the second chapter, Jesus is teaching in a room or in a house that is so crowded that a group of guys that are hopeful to get to Jesus with their, their friend that is paralyzed show up carrying him on his cot or on his mat. They can't even get to Jesus inside of this house, right? And so what do they do? They go up on the roof, they open up a piece of the roof and they drop Jesus down in. And all of this work that they do, they're hoping that their paralyzed friend most likely is going to be able to, to walk for the first time in his life. And Jesus says this, I want you to know your sins are forgiven. The sarcastic side of me is like, uh, Jesus, that's not why we're here. All right, that, that's not why we're here. Like back in the fall, right before this series happened, uh, the associate student pastor, Lydia, was running. She tripped. She got her hand caught up underneath of herself and she fell on her hand and she broke her pinky. And I have never, I have ACL surgery, but I have never broken a bone knowingly in my body. And I said, well, like, how did you know it was broken? And she said, well, you know how your finger is supposed to point that way? It was pointed perpendicular to that. And generally, when bones are pointed 90 degree angles different than they normally are supposed to be, you know it's broken. But if Lydia shows up and she's got this pinky that's pointed in the opposite direction, she shows up at the doctor, she gets the x-ray, the guy holds it up and says, Lydia, I want you to know your sins are forgiven. She's like, I don't care about that. I didn't show up to you to, to, to you know, tell me my sins are forgiven. I showed up so that you can put my finger at the correct angle again and make sure it stays at that angle for the rest of my life. And here are these guys that brought, brought their friend to Jesus and he's showing, I have authority, not just over your physical ability to walk or stay on that mat the rest of your life. I have authority even over the forgiveness of sins. There's actually three things that Jesus shows this authority over in this story. Because after he makes that statement, the religious leaders in there that are a little bit skeptical go, can he do that? They think that in their minds, right? And it says that Jesus even knew their thoughts and says, what's easier for me to do? What's, what's gonna be harder 
For me to just say your sins are forgiven or for me to heal this man and prove that not only do I have the authority over sin, I also have the authority over physical and I have the authority over the thoughts of man as well. That's what Mark is doing. He just keeps expanding Jesus's authority throughout it. We, we hop over a chapter to Mark 3 and it's the Sabbath day. And Jesus is in a synagogue and he knows he's being watched. And in that synagogue, if you're not familiar with the story, it says that there's a man with a deformed hand. And as Jesus knows he's being watched by all of these other skeptical, kind of bitter religious leaders, he calls this man to the front of the room. Now, what's interesting about this, just for your biblical knowledge, is this is the only miracle Jesus initiates himself. Doesn't initiate another recorded miracle in the gospels except for this one. And while this man with the deformed hand is standing up in front of the room, he asks those who are bitter, skeptical, and already somewhat envious, is this a day for doing good or for doing evil? Is this a day to give life or to destroy life? Because these guys, these religious leaders at some point in their history have decided that it is, it is unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. Does that sound weird to anybody else? Like a bunch of guys got in a room, none of them having the power to heal anybody and said, yeah, we think it should be wrong to heal on the Lord's day. And so they took a day that was meant for the good of God's creation, for the good of his image bearers. And they enslaved themselves to that day. And when Jesus asked that question, none of them want to say anything. And he heals the man's hand. And this, when he heals the man hand, it said immediately, those men get up, they leave that place and they answer Jesus's question. When he asks, is it a day for doing good? For a day of doing evil? Is it a day for giving life or taking life? They go out and start plotting to kill him and answer that actually with their horrible motives, the Sabbath is a day to take life. If you just flip over, probably one of the most well-known miracles, maybe even most of you in this room, your favorite miracle, as, as Mark is expanding Jesus's authority and his kingship over everything, is when Jesus is exhausted from healing and teaching and he jumps in the boat and he starts heading across the Sea of Galilee, right? Setting eastward, it's nighttime, he falls asleep in the boat. And while sleeping, we know that a storm arises that terrifies the disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but for some reason, I minimize this storm. Maybe it's because Jesus is sleeping and I'm like, there's no way it could be that bad. There's no way they could have actually thought that the storm was going to kill them. But it says the waves are so high, the wind is so hard that waves are coming, water's coming into the boat and they wake Jesus up because they're like, hey, are you gonna do something about this? Do you care about us enough to just wake up and do something right now? Those storms still take place to this day. They actually have a term for those storms. In Arabic, it's called sharkaya, and it stands for the shark. Because those storms that take place on the Sea of Galilee are so quick and so violent that they can take lives. What's happening in the terrain is that the Sea of Galilee sits 900 feet below sea level. No, 700 feet, sorry. 700 feet below sea level. It's in a basin. 
30 miles northwest of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon sits at a 9,200 feet above sea level. I didn't grow up in Texas, okay? I didn't grow up here, grew up in Pennsylvania. But in the 10 years I've lived in Texas, I have learned that when hot air and cold air mix, it very quickly, that is not good, okay? And the thing that frustrates me the most about when those tornado warnings start getting put on my weather app is that none of us have basements. We're all stuck above the surface. It's like the most ridiculous thing to me. It's like, hey, we live in Tornado Alley. Well, what are you gonna do about it? Nothing. But this hot air coming out of the Sea of Galilee, this cold air dropping down from Mount Hermon will mix. And when they mix, you have what they would call hurricane-like moments of wind and waves happening in that little body of water. And somehow Jesus sleeps through it. And he wakes up and he looks at the winds and the waves and he just said, it's done. Be quiet, be still, and instantly, peace. At my house, I have two dogs, two wiener dogs. I never thought I would own wiener dogs, but I have them, okay? Uh, One wiener dog, his name is Heinz. He's the male, he's a little bit older. And I would be lying that if I said Heinz was good for much, okay? But my wife is in this service, and so I have to reclaim some of his glory. Heinz is good for cuddling. That's it, okay? I'm not sure he's smart enough to understand most of the commands that I'm trying to teach him, okay? Uh, But if there is a blanket around and you are in the mood to cuddle or take a nap, Heinz is your guy. If dogs could have their own spirit animals, I would say that Heinz is a, a healthy combination of a sloth and Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Like he lines up pretty perfectly. That's the speed at which he's always moving at unless there is food involved. Now my other wiener dog that I have, her name is Maggie May. She's a rescue dog out of the Houston area. And Maggie is an 11 pound little ball of energy that is the alpha. Some of you that have two dogs know how this works, okay? She's quick. She trains easily. She understands what you're trying to do and why you're doing it. And she's like, she's always over everything. She makes sure that Fat Hines is staying where she wants him to be. And if he's doing anything outside of what she wants him to be doing, she's gonna let him know about it. And she's more communicative. And I don't know if that's because she's a woman or what, but she likes to talk a lot more. She's barking when the doorbells ring. And so here's what happens on an almost daily basis. Here's what happens. Uh, our fence line, we have a couple of other dogs around our fence line. And in particular, diagonal to me are a couple of big dogs. Well, my little 11 pound Maggie Mae wants to prove to those dogs that if they ever tried to come on the other side of this fence, that she's gonna take care of them. And so she will go over to that corner of the fence, which I'm sure some of your dogs do this, and she will just wait for them to make a sound. And the second they do anything to provoke this little Maggie Mae, she will go ballistic. Ballistic. If, you, if I let you just go in my backyard and you knew this story, you would look at that corner of the fence and go, oh, that must be Maggie Mae's corner. 
because she is clawing at all of the wood. She actually is biting at the posts while she's doing all of this. Like she loses her mind. And guess what? It makes me lose my mind too. Because I don't want to be that neighbor. I don't want to be that neighbor. Like that dog, that little 11 pound dog, she has this bark that just goes straight through your body, your soul, everything. And so from wherever I am, when Maggie Mae is jumping and trying to get to those dogs, I just scream out, Maggie, enough! And she stops. She starts coming in the house, wondering if she has obeyed quick enough. I told this story to the students. Some of them believed me. Some of them didn't. A group of guys came over to my house to watch Cowboy game. Cowboys probably lost, but that's beside the point. And while we're sitting watching the game, Maggie starts doing this. And from inside the house, I just yell, Maggie, enough! Stops, comes, comes inside the house. They look at me and they go, that, you were telling us true. Like, that actually happens. I said, yeah, that actually happens. Like, even if my wife, my wife can be standing directly next to her, right here, and Maggie's jumping. Maggie, stop. Just keeps doing it. Okay? Because my wife never disciplines this dog. It's just me. And I can be in the front yard. And if Beth's like, I can't get Maggie to stop, I'll just yell over my house, Maggie, enough. Stops. Comes in the house. Why? Because as much of as an alpha dog as Maggie is, I'm the master. She knows I'm the master. And as I read this story of Jesus being out in that water with those disciples, everything is breaking loose. He simply says, quiet, be still. And in the same way, an 11 pound dog obeys my command because she has to. I'm the master. The winds and the waves. The winds and the waves copy the demeanor of their master, of the king. And immediately they're at peace. This is the first time in Mark where we see that not only are the disciples amazed by his kingship, but they are now terrified by that kingship as well but it has to. And so Mark just keeps expanding Jesus's authority. It just keeps growing. Like there's nothing that defeats Jesus. He's the king. He's the master of his creation. Nothing can disobey his order. Doesn't matter what sickness it is. Doesn't matter, uh, you know, what's going on. Doesn't matter if it's forgiveness of sins. Doesn't matter if it's, if it's a legion of demons. Everything has to listen to the king. And at the same time as Mark is unfolding Jesus's expanding authority, Something else keeps expanding as well, if you're not familiar with it. Those religious leaders are not happy with this authority. You know how it said that they wanted to murder him and they start plotting for how can we kill him? Well, that starts picking up momentum. That starts expanding as well. Their murderous hatred, their bitterness, their envy that they have for Jesus finally kind of comes to a head. 
And when one of Jesus' own who stood and watched these things finally realizes that this is not a king that is concerned with political power or this physical world, but this is a king that is so much more concerned with a spiritual. When Judas finally realizes there's nothing left that Jesus has to offer in his pursuit of power or wealth, he betrays him, right? And the king does nothing to stop it. As Jesus is handed over to the Jewish high priests and all of these religious leaders, and they have this this ridiculous trial to try to just come up with something that they can use to murder Jesus. That even if if you study the way that the Jewish high priest court worked, they were in violation of three obvious rules that they should, should have gotten Jesus off the hook immediately. And this whole time that Jesus is being accused of things and accounts aren't lining up and people are lying all over the place, Jesus, the king, still does nothing. Once the Jews kind of figure out, we at least have something to do to get this guy murdered and off the scene. They hand him over to the Romans, right? And Jesus now stands in front of Pilate. And we get the impression that Pilate knew he's innocent. Pilate knows that this is like, this is, this is amazing. He may not know he's the king, but he knows something. And he's almost looking to give Jesus reasons. Just say something so that I can declare your innocence. And Jesus still does nothing. As Pilate is eventually forced by the mob and Jesus' lack of trying to get himself freed, he decides that he needs to be mocked. He decides that he needs to be beaten. He decides that he needs to be flogged. All of this, especially the flogging, is now where we're getting to the point where that could have killed Jesus alone because of how strenuous it was. And Jesus, the king that has authority over all, does nothing. If you know the story, it gets to the point where Jesus is stretched out and nailed to a cross and is for hours hanging there, breathing slower and slower, breath after breath, until eventually he gives up his last breath. I've been a Christian for a while. Obviously, I'm a pastor, so study scripture. When I come to the gospels, I always try, I try, try, try to read them as if this is the first time that I've ever heard this story. I just wanna see it fresh. And with those fresh eyes, when I read this story, the whole time, All of this is happening. I'm just going, Jesus, you're the king. What are you doing? What are you, how did you do these things? And yet, these men that have nothing against you, you allow them to do this to you. Like, you calmed a freaking storm, the Sharkaya. And you let these few men nail you to a cross and kill you. What are you 
doing? Stop it. Just stop it at any moment. You have the authority. Just stop it. I actually, uh, a few times a week, I have a chance to get together with some senior high guys, do some discipleship. And last fall, we were sitting in a pizza joint, one, me and a, a senior high student. And we were just reflecting on this series and talking about the accounts that were coming up, the suffering, the crucifixion. And no joke, this senior student looks at me. He knows the Bible. He looks at me and he just goes, Mike, I don't get it. I, I, I don't understand. How, why? How does the king who has shown to have authority over everything, How does this happen to him? Why would it happen? Why would he allow it to happen? And I looked at the student, I said, we demean hyperbolic words all the time in our society. We use unbelievable and amazing and awesome over dumb social media posts, right? Over videos, over movies, over food. And I looked at him and I just said, bro, This is literally unbelievable that the king, it is beyond my ability to completely understand that the king would allow this stuff to happen to him. It doesn't make sense. Garland in his his commentary on Mark says this, Jesus always uses his miraculous power for others, never for himself. One can see then that the crucifixion is not a failure of that power, but an act of voluntary humiliation in divine love for others. That's where the uncommon part of this king comes in. Is that at any moment, Jesus could have said, enough. And with the mere thought in his head, everything could have been set for his benefit. I know there's a lot of superhero movies out and sometimes the storyline of those superhero movies is that our our hero has lost confidence. And hopefully, right before the movie is over, some wise master will talk to him or give him the secret to unlock his confidence and he will be able to win the day and save the world. That's not happening here. There's no kryptonite that exists In this story, it's like Jesus really wanted to get himself out of all of this situation, but he couldn't because his powers had been weakened. What Garland is saying is Jesus will never use his authority on his own behalf, only to the benefit of his creation. His benefit, the benefit to his image bearers. Jesus' body is taken off of the cross. Friday night, it stays over in a tomb. Saturday, all day Saturday, it stays in that tomb. And Sunday morning, from the account that Mark gives us, some of Jesus' followers, some women, decide that they want to go and put spices on his body. And when they show up, the stone is rolled away and his body isn't there. And they see an angel that says, Jesus is, he isn't here, he has risen. 
all through the suffering, when I, as the reader, want to say, Jesus, say enough. You're the master, just say enough. For our benefit, he goes through all of it willingly, intentionally, out of divine love. And then after he has paid for our sins, a debt that we cannot pay back, after a Friday night, a Saturday, and a Sunday, he finally, the same way that I say to an 11-pound dog, enough, and she has to listen, he says that same enough to death again for our benefit. That's what makes the uncommon king. If you like studying religions or faith systems or deities, you go check and see if you can find that type of king anywhere. I guarantee you, you can't. You can only get one or the other. You can get the humility without the authority. You can get the authority without the humility. You do not get both of them combined anywhere else except for this king. You ever notice uh, when you read articles online or you're arguing with people sometimes, we do a really good job, unfortunately, we do a really good job of playing the either or game when really we should be showing that it, sides are complementing each other and it's a both and, right? Like the other day, my wife was reading me an article and I'm listening to it and the critique the author was giving of another author I'm just like sitting there going, why is it one side against another side? Like both of their points of view of you are complementing each other right now. Like if they, instead of her writing it in a way that was, that's wrong, this is right. Let's go, these two sides actually complete each other. Paul does this in the book of Colossians as he points out this uncommon king and the both and of Jesus, this is what he says in the book of Colossians. Christ, the visible image of the invisible God, he existed before anything was created and he is supreme over all creation. He's the king. In verse 17, he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Verse 19 and 20, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of the uncommonness of Christ's blood on the cross the uncommon king. Pete made it very clear as he was going through Mark that one of the things that Mark, as the author, wanted to force you as the reader or the hearer to do is to have to decide what are you gonna do with Jesus? What are you gonna do with this king? Like, you don't, you don't get to just read it and walk away from it with nothing. Just say that was a good Saturday read. Happy I did that instead of watching television. You have to decide what to do with this type of authority and this type of humility. And I think that's a good question for us to end on. 
Most likely, if you're sitting in here today, you fall into one of two camps. And that is maybe you've been around this story before. Maybe you've never heard it fully laid out. Maybe you have some, some kind of presuppositions about Jesus and about church and all of that. And the temptation is to justify, well, Mike, like, sure, I don't, I don't accept him, but I'm also not aggressively rejecting him like the religious leaders were. Like, yeah, maybe I don't accept him, but I would not have been in the mob screaming, crucify him either. Like, that's not me. I just want to be left alone and go about my day. Like, I'm not going to be aggressive about this. I I want you to know something when it comes to the king. Aggressive rejection and apathetic rejection are still rejection. They're still rejection. The notion that we can stay in control and in authority of our own lives and we don't need somebody else is a a very foolish notion. And I'm sure at times in your life, you've seen where that's gotten you. So consider the king. That's the first camp. The second camp I actually relate to because I I gave my my life to Christ young. I, I followed him. And at moments in my life, I can see how I feel as if I am now a good enough Christian, mature enough, grown enough, been through enough to say, God, I know I, I gave that authority over to you, but I think I'm finally ready to take it back. Anybody else? And at sometimes, this is almost a minute-by-minute power struggle in my day between God and me of, I really know you want authority, but I really like control. Either way, whatever camp you're in, when you come to this king, you can't stay in control. In student ministry, it's been coming up a lot. We've been talking a lot about the posture of your hearts, right? Sometimes it's really hard to conceptually explain all that faith is. And one of the, I think, most tangible ways that I've been able to think about it is the posture of my heart. Just like my body language has, my posture that I have conveys certain things to people, the posture of my heart also conveys to God where I am. And as we close today, and as I pray, I would just like to give you an opportunity in those moments to say to God, to evaluate either as someone that has never placed their authority in his hands or someone that has, and yet in times you are so tempted to draw that authority back and say, I'm good, I got this, God. To think about how foolish both sides are when we're dealing with this type of king. A type of king who has all authority, all power, and yet does not use it on his own behalf, but uses it for the benefit of you. Do you realize if at any moment in this story, that king says, not worth it. 
don't deserve it. Didn't do anything to, to earn this. Don't love them that much. That we still have a massive problem on our hands. And yet this king is so uncommon in his love and humility that now he just says, give the authority over, I got it all taken care of. What will you do with the king? Let me pray. Father, I am not sure why it is so easy to want the control and so hard to give it to you at times. But Father, it's foolish. It's a lie that we believe, that I believe, that gets us nowhere. And God, I pray for the person in here that has has never encountered you as this uncommon king, Lord, that their decision would be made to follow you and to just give you their lives, to yield that power over to you. God, I pray for Hillside, the, the community that we have that so often we're, we're kind of good at what we do. We're, we're smart people and, so, and we're, we're mature. And so in our minds, we think, that we can grab that control back, that we can be in power. And Lord, I just ask that you would remind us, show us on daily basis why that type of posture towards you is so destructive. Thank you for being both uncommon and a king and not one or the other. In your name. Amen.